you have your Bibles, turn to uh, Luke chapter 7. Uh, that's where we're going to be at today. We are in week two of our series, uh, Spoken, which is all about our God who reveals himself in multiple ways, but the primary way that we see God reveal himself through scripture is through stories. For example, when, when Jesus uh, was here and, and he was doing his earthly ministry, one of, the, one of his roles was to reveal who God was. And uh, one of the ways that he did that was by telling stories called parables. And um, parables always started out with a very similar phrase, something like, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of God is compared to. And so he, then he would go into the story. And parables weren't necessarily real stories of real people and real events. They were basically illustrative stories to communicate a truth and reveal who God was. Um, and so through these stories, Jesus reveals more and more of who God was and how we relate to him. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at some of these stories. And now for those of you who um, didn't grow up at, in church, this is a great opportunity for you to hear some of these stories. Because some of these parables are a little obscure, and we're going to try and hit some of those ones that most of you might not have heard of. Uh, but others of you have grown up in church, and you've heard a lot of these parables. For those of you who have grown up in church and heard a lot of these parables, um, I just want to encourage you to listen to them with, with fresh ears. Um, because there has been a whole generation of, of churchgoers who have heard the parables taught as moralistic fables, right? Like, like they're an illustrative story to tell you how to live and what to do and what not to do. And there's some of that in these stories. There's some of that going on. But there's so much more going on in these stories. There's, there's, a, there's a much deeper level in these parables where there's like this mystery that reveals who God is and his character. And they're just really, really rich. And so I don't want you to miss that as we go through these. Um, now today we're going to look at a parable um, that's kind of nestled in an actual story that really happened with real people. Um, and it's often referred to as the parable of the debtors or a story of two debtors. And um, before we jump in, I kind of want to set it up for you. Um, don't answer this question out loud, don't raise your hand, but do you have someone in your life who just feels very entitled to everything. Most of us probably do. They're just people who live life like everything is entitled to them. Like it could be a beautiful day, right? And, and they don't acknowledge the fact that that beautiful day is a gift, right? They just think it's, it's owed to them. And so they feel, you know, entitled to, to beautiful days or they feel entitled to a, a great time with a good friend or they feel entitled to, you know, a really great meal or, you know, they might feel entitled to their job or their, their house or to their, their relationships. And they just feel entitled to everything. And as a result, they take everything for granted. And that leads them to just really become ungrateful people. A critical factor in life is whether you take things for granted or you receive them with gratitude. And I just want to encourage the single people here for a minute. Um, I know that a lot of you have this mental list of 
the kind of person you're looking for, right? Like some of the characteristics you're looking for in someone that you hope to marry someday. And, um, but, but this one right here, gratitude, having a grateful heart, should be at the top of your list, right? I mean, to find someone to live your life with who, who is, just gr- is just a grateful person rather than an entitled person should be at the top of your list, right? I mean, I am so blessed because my wife, Vicki, is one of the most grateful people I know. She looks at all of life as a gift, which is really great for our marriage because she views me as a gift, right? <laughs> which is kind of awesome. <laughs> but, I mean, honestly, that's what we teach our, uh, the, the young couples who go through premarital counseling with us is, is you've got to receive your spouse as a gift from God. Um, but, I mean, young people, seriously, imagine what it would be like to be treated as a gift for the rest of your life. I mean, doing life with a grateful person is so much better than trying to do life with a person who feels entitled to everything. All right? All right, so, uh, but it's this attitude of gratitude that I just sort of want to address this morning in the context of your spiritual life with God. And one day, Jesus tells this story about how our attitude towards his forgiveness exposes a whole lot about our relationship with God. So in Luke, so Luke chapter 7, we're going to begin with the story that sets up the story that Jesus tells us, sets up the parable. All right, Luke 7, beginning with verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisees who had invited, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him. And what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. All right, now there's a whole bunch of weird stuff happening here. So let me just give you some historical context. And we'll begin with Simon. Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus to his home for dinner. And how many of you think that this Pharisee named Simon has invited Jesus to dinner because he loves him and wants to bless him? Yeah, probably not, right? Most of the Pharisees hated Jesus. They were trying to trap him and, and trick him and do all sorts of different things. Um, we don't know his motivation, but as we start to put details of the story together, you realize this is not a warm and inviting atmosphere. Um, and there's a lot of things that Simon does not do to or for Jesus that you would normally do for a guest in your home in, in this culture. And you'll see that as the story continues. Another thing that's important to note is that throughout Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the friend of sinners, right? Well, what's interesting in this case is just because he's a friend of sinners doesn't mean he won't visit the home of a self-righteous Pharisee, right? It's kind of cool. Might not have ever thought of that. Um, now, Jewish dinner parties in the first century were very, very different from, from dinner parties in, in our culture, 
Um, but what's interesting in this case um, is that in ancient Jewish culture, they didn't just sit at, 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 in chairs at tables like we have, right? They reclined on pillows at tables that may have been like eight or ten inches off the ground, um, which explains why this woman was able to be behind Jesus and cry at his feet and cry on his feet. Another thing you need to understand is this woman is not an invited guest. Right? At, at Jewish dinner parties in the first century, the house would be open to anybody who wanted to come uh, and just sort of observe what was happening. doesn't necessarily mean you get to partake in the dinner, but you just can kind of observe what's happening. One of the things that commonly took place is that poor people in the community would show up to these dinner parties, and as, their, uh, as the leftovers were made available, they would give all the leftovers to the poor because, you know, they couldn't put them in the fridge. They didn't have fridges, right? So they would give all the leftovers to the poor at these dinner parties. And so the, the dinner parties weren't just open to the poor people. Anybody who wanted to come could just come and, and, and observe. And that's why this sinful woman was able to be at the home of this self-righteous Pharisee, right? Because I, I, I guarantee you, he didn't, like, hunt her down and say, hey, if you got nothing to do, just come on, you know, join us, right? No. Um, and the story doesn't tell us what her sinfulness is, but in most cases, when a woman is identified as a, a sinner, or in other versions, it calls her an immoral woman, it usually refers to prostitution. But I just want you to imagine this woman, right, who lives in this highly conservative, highly religious culture. She is known to everyone as a sinner, which, which means in a culture where women didn't have any rights to begin with, she's like the lowest of the low in, on, the, on the cultural ladder. And she finds herself in the presence of Jesus, and she loses it. She's crying so hard that her tears wet Jesus' feet. And so she uses her hair to dry his feet. Then she kisses his feet. And then she pours perfume on his feet. So, in this act of what she's done here, this sinful woman loves, serves, worships, and gives to Jesus, right? These are all the things, not in the way she did it, but, but these are the things that the, the, the host of this home should have already been doing for Jesus, but he wasn't, and she did. Now, <clears throat> when she does this, everything at the dinner party stops. Everyone has stopped what they're doing. All attention has focused to this, what this woman is doing to Jesus. Everybody is like, oh my gosh, can you believe what she just did, right? I mean, this is a major party foul. And like, have you ever been to a party where something so embarrassingly awkward and outrageously embarrassing happens, just everything stops? And don't elbow your husband or wife because they don't need to be reminded of that, right? Um, but it, it kind of reminds me of this story that I heard Gosh, years and years ago, but it has kind of stuck with me because it's always, I've always had this fear of something like this happening to me. 
But the story is, is about um, this church, very similar to ours, where the kids get to be in the worship service with the adults, and then after worship, the kids are dismissed um, to children's church. And so this children's pastor, every once in a while, before the kids get dismissed to children's church, she'll bring the kids up on stage and just kind of show all the adults what the kids are learning, right? Just like little object lessons and things like that. And so this one Sunday, she, um, she, she, well, she had been teaching the kids this, this fun little thing where she asks them a question. Where she, well, no, she starts off by saying, I have a secret. Do you want to know what the secret is? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we want to know what the secret is. And the secret is, Jesus loves you. And then she taught them that they would say, I have a secret too. Jesus loves you. Right? She, so she, no, she would say, do you have a secret for me? And then they would respond, yeah, Jesus loves you too. Right? So that was the, that was the object lesson that she had been teaching. So she's up here the following Sunday trying to show the parents what she has taught these kids. And, and so <laughs> she brings the kids up, and rather than have the whole group do it, she calls on the pastor's kid to do it because he always gets the answers right. And so what she didn't remember was that he wasn't there the week before. And so <laughs> she, she starts going off, and she goes... Hey, Johnny, I have, I have a secret. She's like, you want to hear what the secret is? And he's like, he's like, yeah, yeah. And she goes, Jesus loves you. And then she goes, do you have a secret for me? And he just kind of has this confused look. And she's like, it's okay, come on, you can, you can tell it to me. And he just goes, sometimes my mom and dad take a shower together. my gosh. As a pastor, you know, I just play through how bad that would be. Like, how do you recover from that? (laughs) So sometimes things happen in a social context that's so inappropriate, it shocks everyone, right? And everything stops. That's what's happening here in this story. And Simon the host is just as shocked as everybody else Probably more since it was his party. I mean, he can't believe this is happening. This woman, who is known to everybody as a sinner, is now, is, is now touching his guest, right? And, and I mean, he, this woman whose touch would defile a good person, right? He's just freaking out over it, right? But not only is Simon offended by this woman... He can't believe Jesus doesn't condemn her. And so Simon just like throws shade at both of them, right? For the woman because she's a sinner and for for Jesus because he's not condemning her for it. He said if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. And it's in this response that we get a glimpse of his attitude towards Jesus. Because the Pharisees were always trying to bring into question the claims that Jesus made about himself, right? And Jesus made the claim that he is the son of God. And he's like, surely if he's the son of God, he ought to know who this woman is. 
and what kind of person he is, why, why would he even let that happen? See, everything in Simon's culture, in his religious culture, taught him that good people protect their goodness by avoiding sinful people. And as a Pharisee, Simon has a lot of self-righteousness, right? All the Pharisees did. I mean, if he were backed in a corner, he might admit that he's a little bit of a sinner, right? Because, you know, to a small degree... But he is not a sinner like her, right? Like, like if he had had contact with someone, he wouldn't defile them, right? Like everybody thought she would. So Simon believed he was qualitatively better than this woman. He might be a little sinner. She's a big sinner. And you know how this goes in your life, right? Like when you make a critical statement about someone, but you kind of throw that disclaimer in first. Like, hey, I know I'm not perfect, but, right? <laughs> um, in essence, you're saying, I'm a little sinner, but I'm not a big sinner like them, right? So Simon makes this statement in Jesus' response. Verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men, and this is the parable, okay? It's only like three sentences long. I think it's the shortest parable of all. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the, had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. So there's a couple of interesting things uh, about this parable. The first of which is that two people have a debt with the money lender. Right? In the parable, two men owe a debt that neither of them can pay. And that's the most important point. Neither of them can pay this debt. See, the, the question of who owes more is purely academic. Because whether you owe 50 or 500, if the debt is due and you don't have the money to pay, you're bankrupt, right? Both people in the story have no ability to pay the debt. And in a spiritual sense, none of us can pay back our debt to God. Every single one of us are spiritually bankrupt. We have no ability to pay on our own the debt we owe to God. So why in the world are we so focused on determining who is the greater sinner in our culture? Right? It doesn't matter. We're all broke, right? And so back to the parable, in an act of grace, the moneylender cancels the debt. It's an act of grace because he doesn't require the, the debtors to do anything. They don't have to do anything to be forgiven of the debt. And it's an act of grace because he doesn't just give them an extension to pay their debt. He frees them from it. They're totally free from the debt. And so what Jesus is doing here is that he's revealing to us the very essence of God's grace. He's helping us see the character and the heart of God towards us. 
And when Jesus asked this very simple question back to Simon, which of them will love him more? And it's through this question to Simon that Jesus is teaching us that there is a link between love and forgiveness. That the forgiven person will love the forgiver because they've been forgiven of the debt. There's a direct correlation between how much we're forgiven and how much we love. And so the question that begs to be asked here is how much do you perceive you've been forgiven? How much do you perceive that you've been forgiven? Do you rely on a lot of self-righteousness and compare yourself to people who are a lot worse than you and think, I haven't been forgiven of that much. Or maybe you're like the, the immoral woman who's been forgiven of a, a, so much, right? Because you just had crazy past. Regardless of where you fall in that spectrum, we've all been forgiven of everything. Look at what... Um, James 2.10 says, For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as the person who's broken all of God's laws. In God's eye, there's no big sinner, little sinner going on. We're all guilty of breaking the whole law. And if in your relationship with God, you don't have a deep sense of love and gratitude, the first place you need to look is your perception of how much you've been forgiven. Because we've been forgiven of the whole law, the whole debt. The wages of sin is what? We're all at level playing field, right? Where there is understood forgiveness, there should be undeniable love. Scripture says we love him. Why? Because he loved us first. He lavished all his love and forgiveness on us and... As, our, as a response, we love him back. So where there's understood forgiveness, we, there should be undeniable love. And if we truly understood that we are guilty of breaking the whole law, there wouldn't be any of this little sinner, big sinner garbage between us. But due to Simon's self-righteousness, due to his self-righteousness, Simon couldn't see he was just as spiritually bankrupt as the sinful woman. Even though she probably broke more laws than he did, they were both guilty of breaking the whole law. Then the story continues, verse 44. Then he, Jesus, turned to the woman and said, No, then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little... Loves little. Simon thinks he is qualitatively different 
from this woman. And that's his biggest problem. What he needs to embrace is that he is just like her. He is spiritually bankrupt. And Simon desperately needs the grace and forgiveness of God just as much as this woman. If he could see that, he would have been loving Jesus just as much as she was. Maybe not the same way, but he would, he would have not been guilty of not doing all the things that hosts are supposed to do with their guests. For some of you, you spend a great deal of time comparing yourself with other people and being judgmental of other people. And the reason is you've simply forgotten the magnitude of sin that God has forgiven in your life. For some of you, your worship is extremely stale right now. And it's because you've forgotten the magnitude of the sin that God has forgiven in your life. For some of you, you feel very entitled to many things in life. And it's because you've forgotten the magnitude of the debt that was canceled on your behalf. Great love, joy, and worship are the natural response to great forgiveness. And we have all received great forgiveness. All right, real quick, let's look how the story ends and then we'll wrap it up. Verse 48. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this guy who even forgives sins? Jesus said to this woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love this because if you think about it, Jesus has this woman in the palm of his hand, right? I mean, she, she is at a place of complete surrender. She is just over-the-top emotional. She, I mean, she would be willing to do anything Jesus asked her to do, right? And, and so this would be a really good place for Jesus, before Jesus sends her off to, to give her a list of things that she needs to do, right? Um, I mean, like, Jesus, if you've got five things for her to do, give them to her now, right? She's going to do them, whatever they are. But he doesn't do that, does he? He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She doesn't have to do anything because Jesus is going to do everything. She doesn't have to do anything because Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to do everything for her. He's going to pay her debt. And this woman is going to leave this house. And for the first time, a man has made her feel clean instead of dirty. She's going to leave this house. And for the first time, it doesn't matter what anybody thinks about her. Because deep down in her heart, she knows that Jesus has set her free. And she is not the same person as she was. She leaves that house different than when she came because she has placed her trust in Jesus. 
And so I wanted to close with just a simple question, and then we'll spend a few minutes praying. Some of you are really passionate spiritually in your spiritual life. But some of you are sadly indifferent. The question is, do you really understand the magnitude of the debt you have been forgiven? Either you haven't received the grace of God, or you've misunderstood it. Let's pray.